five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA. We're fighting for direct mail every day. If you're a printer, if you're a mailer, get on board. We'll give you some crazy news. It'll give you inspiration to, to, to fight against the digital fraud. And especially today, we got some great stuff here uh, for you today. So let's get over to the news. Okay. And first, I want to talk about, ran across a really interesting story from CNBC um, about Salton, California. There was a Lake Salton. Um, the Colorado River spilled off into the desert. And for, for decades, in the 50s and 60s, uh, it was a resort area. And... Um, you know, there was enough water to have boating and fishing and all sorts of things, but eventually it's drying up because it isn't being refilled. And so it's kind of a ghost area. But there's also geothermal. And so there's about a dozen or something plants, geothermal plants, and they're, they pump water through the brine and through the geothermal heat and make steam and make electricity. But they also... Um, it turns out that the water that murks around in these mineral springs, you know, it's kind of like Yellowstone Park, um, sucks mineral, sucks lithium out. And um, I didn't know that there were major sources of lithium in the United States. So it's kind of optimistic. So let's let's just give that a little watch for a second here, if I can get over there and. I think you'll learn something. Yet amidst this environmental disaster, the unique geology of the region has created a geothermal resource area that covers more than 10,000 acres. There are 11 operating power plants at the Salton Sea, 10 owned by Berkshire Hathaway and one by Energy Source. Together, they have the capacity to produce around 400 megawatts of clean geothermal energy, enough to power about 350,000 homes, over seven times the number of houses in Imperial County, where the plants are located. We are standing arguably in between the North American and the Pacific plates. So as the continents pull apart, the crust is thin. And so you have these hot magmatic bodies that come close to the surface. Magma heats the surrounding rocks and salty water called brine circulates among them. Minerals like lithium dissolve into the brine, which is used to produce geothermal energy when it's pumped to the surface and converted into a gas that turns an electricity generating turbine. Now watch this part. Geothermal power plants have operated at the Salton Sea for 40 years. Wow. And traditionally, the leftover brine is just re-injected back into the earth. Just dump it back down. But as the electric vehicle market heats up, technology that can recover lithium from these brines is receiving increased attention and investment. But this isn't the first time that there's been interest in lithium recovery at the Salton Sea. Well, anyway, so what they're saying is that they can take the lithium and extract it from the brine pretty much right away. It's sort of like um, in the in 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the power plants um, in in Wisconsin uh, used started using the softer coal from uh, out in North Dakota, I think, and they it had lots of sulfur in it, and so the sulfur would go up and you could kind of smell it, but it would kind of precipitate back down onto the onto the area around there, and so it made it really great for growing cabbage. But then the environmentalists decided that the sulfur was bad because of the acid rain back in uh, Canada or something. And they, uh, and so now they inject calcium into the hot gases coming out of the coal plants and they create gypsum. And gypsum is a calcium sulfur um, 
mix sort of a chemical and then the farmers have to buy it and spread it on the fields but it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing the way that the the sulfur is extracted from the from the exiting gases and it sounds like something like that with lithium so um you know i've been kind of i was real positive on windmills then i found out the economics <laughs> i was real positive on solar and it's great if you're on a sailboat in the middle of the indian ocean but you know it's it's maybe not as practical we need all kinds of solutions right but i was troubled about the batteries and and that we were getting our lithium from basically all from china and i think afghanistan has a lot of it and so i'm i'm uh i'm pleased that there are lithium sources in the united states and that there are interesting and environmentally benign ways to get the, the lithium better than pretty much anywhere else in the world so that's pretty exciting and this one area this salt and lake desert whatever area has the capability of producing all the u.s needs and perhaps 40 percent of the world's needs so there's quite a bit there to play with and so um so how cool is that uh let's get over to the uh pdf world boom, boom. there we go uh, Elon Musk put his Twitter sale on hold pending the examination of the bot level. <laughs> Twitter claimed that there were no more than 4 or 5% of bots on Twitter that were automated tweeting machines. Um, Musk thinks it's more. Uh, in 2017, estimates ran about 15% of the tweets were from bots. Um, and so he's going to sort it out. Uh, the stock today went down 15% on that kind of news. Uh, interestingly, Musk, a couple of days ago, said, if our Twitter bid succeeds, we will defeat the spam bots or die trying. If someone is operating a bot and troll army, then I will def definitely, then I am definitely their enemy. Uh on the other hand, mechanized boosting uh, seems to have helped Tesla and Musk in particular on, uh, this is the part I like the best, uh, to present Musk as a model of manliness <laughs> and the opposite of George Soros. So anyway, that's enough of that. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we, <clears throat> if we really can get to the bottom of the bots because... Uh, constant improvement in bot technology is making them harder to spot, especially among the billions of, of <clears throat> supposed users on Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc. And sadly, up until now, Twitter, Facebook, and Google have had a vested interest in the bots because they validate digital advertising, as my friend Dr. Augustine Fu says. Uh, the 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 big players the big social media players have little interest in getting rid of the bots because the bots give you clicks even if they're completely baloney they justify the digital media frenzy and the inflated prices so if you wondered why i was talking about musk that's why <clears throat> okay here's an excellent article by mark ritson about if you don't invest 5% of your marketing budget in research, you don't know what you're doing. And this, you don't know what you're doing, is literally true. 
it's not just you're not you don't know what you're doing in marketing you don't know who your customer is you don't know who your target audience is you don't know the kind of offers that they respond to and so this is generally an article that suggests that uh, you should be doing 5% of your market budget should go to research and uh, unlike the well we'll get into the story he says Daily Mail uh, this week ran an article saying that the BBC bosses have a $50 million plan to find out what viewers want. Apparently, Daily Mail is a right-wing newspaper. I didn't know that. I just think if it's offshore, it's got to be better. <laughs> you know, I always like to look at Guardian stories and Daily Mail stories, too. Okay. Um, and uh, according to the article, BBC has published a jargon-riddled invitation. I get involved with Toys R Us long ago before they went under, and you know they had an RFP for their data market, marketing database, and it was all jargon. It was all about think outside the box and we'll know our customers' needs and all the rest of this stuff. Now, the trouble is, <clears throat> is that if you remember the jingle, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Okay, but you do grow up. My kids grew up. We used to be like a fixture at the Toys R Us store. <laughs> send the kids in, let them play around in the aisles with the stuff, see what they like, send them back to the car, and one of us would buy the stuff. Um, but they grew up, and their their needs and wants changed. And as that bubble, the baby boomer bubble, baby, the baby boomer babies bubble burst, Toys R Us was not going to solve it by knowing more about their customer. If there were just fewer customers, and there were, and in fact it was uh, it was a mess. I can't get into it all, but um, but I remember reading the RFP and uh, just all jargon. It was basically in in that case I would guess this is just pure speculation that it was designed to attract uh, investment, <laughs> you know, attract investor money, that they were going to re revolutionize retailing and all that. Okay, so um, what a bunch of terrible things they take in there. BBC is is partly or maybe all funded by uh, license fees and um, and publicly funded. So they're taking public funds and they're putting them into research. Isn't that terrible? Um, it staggers me. A member of Parliament, Julian Knight, says it staggers me. They're looking at spending this sort of money at a time like this. Okay, so now Ritson says, well, first of all, it's a four-year plan, so it's only $12.5 per year. Uh, it's a billion. They spent something like $4 billion just in public service programming. So, that, you know, if you, if you consider their marketing to be public service programming, then this is like 1% of that, uh, if, you know, because they market themselves that way. Okay, so he says there's three types of research that typically brands do. The first is when there's a new CMO and uh, they take a deep dive into, into uh, or, or if a new product or market is contemplated. So when I was working with Lovesack, which is a retail store um, that sells furniture, they got a new VP of marketing at the time. They may have, a, Patrick may be their CMO now, but he was a VP of marketing. And he, he, you know, we talked a little bit and he said, you know, I'm thinking we don't really need to mail to our customers because 
um, because our main, according to our research, which they were doing a whole bunch of research, focus groups and other things, uh, he said, we, you know, people haven't heard of us. Once they have heard of us, they are, we are about as likely to get an order as uh, Williams-Sonoma and other, uh, other retail furniture stores that offer, also offer online ordering. And um, I said, well, uh, Patrick, let's, let's find out. Let's test it. And he looked at me and he, he was like, how, could, how can you test it? Uh, and this is where I'm going to go with Ritson's article is that he's right, but direct marketing gives us the tools to actually answer questions about our target market and about our, uh, about our market's preferences um, at a product level, at a, at, a, at a branding level, and at a, uh, an individual household level. And part of the way we do it is we have uh, three or four basic tests. But the first one, which we used with Lovesack, was called the holdout test. We, I said, well, what we'll do is we'll not mail. We'll mail, uh, you know, your typical mailing, and we'll, we'll hold out about 10% of it. And we'll see how they do compared to the ones we mailed. Because the mail may still be having benefit. We see it as very profitable on our modeling and our, you know, our, our basically EBITDA type uh, P&L. The, the way we look at each individual mailing is like, a, like an EBITDA P&L. Um, and he said, okay, let's try that. And so what we found was that there was a 300% return on investment uh, bottom line profit. So for every dollar they spent on uh, the catalog, they got $3 back in profit after the cost of goods, after the cost of the, of the catalog, etc., and the fulfillment, etc. So um, he said, well, I guess we better keep going. And so we did. And then as we were doing this matchback process, what we found out was that in addition to that, for every one order we got from customers, we got two from, from new customers. And what we speculate is that the that the uh, the catalog was either getting handed to neighbors and friends. Well, we were tracking the neighbors because we found lots of orders with the next door neighbor. And one of the things about mail that's very rarely talked about is this pass along value. It's easier to hand a friend who's over at your house and says, "Where'd you get that nice couch?" And you've been mailing this customer regularly, so they know they're probably going to get another catalog someday. So they don't have any any reservation in handing it out. Whatever the reason, we found a lot of orders of next door neighbors or in the same building or whatever, same same street address, different apartment numbers, some, a lot of that kind of thing. And when we took those into account, it was a 900% return on investment. So every dollar you spent on the catalog, it probably generated about, uh, for every dollar you spent, probably about $30 in sales, about and about $10, 9 or $10 in uh, additional profit. So what Ritson says is, is that when the new CMO comes, there's usually a deep dive. That's what we were doing. Second, there was lesser but common annual research and updates. Okay, And what the advantage, now I'm not going to say all modeling because I don't think most modeling, uh, there's, there's basically two ends of the spectrum in modeling. One is the regression modeling, which only has a few variables. You try to boil down every variable that's uh, collinear, every variable that sort of tells the same thing, like dwelling value, the value of your house, is kind of related to the income, especially in a geography, right? So 
the education level is related to the income in an area, okay? Graduation rate. There's all sorts of things that are related and go alongside each other. So in regression, you try to get rid of all those and try to find the best one. And so you find a five, four or five that really matter and you and you sort your customers based on a weighting of those of those few elements. Now, the other end of the spectrum is um, uh, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, um, you know, that sort of thing. Neural net, uh, you know, we used, well, anyway, and that will often have thousands of variables, thousands of variables. And it will, in a certain sense, evaluate each person and decide on the basis of all this, of all kinds of, well, you don't even know what it's exactly doing, but it does work. It works and usually works very well. You just don't know quite why. That's the other end. So one is very understandable and one is very, very powerful. Um, and what we've done is sort of meet in the middle where we use a maximum of 500 variables. You can't use more than that. That's the limit. Um, but you can sort through a thousand and boil it down to the best 500. That's not hard to do. And then once you do that, you get a uh, an insight because we see every grouping of customers. And that's what I went through with Dick Cabello when I taught him about machine learning. And what that does is it accomplishes the things that that Ritson is talking about and why you should have uh, why you should have an ongoing research program. Um, then the, and the third one is simple A-B splits, uh, where you test different creative, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the advantage that mail has, I just want to mention, is that we not only know who ordered, which gives us the sort of one side of the data set. We know who the customers are that came as a result of a particular uh, mailing. But we also know who got mailed and didn't order. And we know that that mail got delivered, unlike digital, we don't. Digital, we don't know if anybody saw the ad or not. We know maybe only bots. Uh, and you know, many companies have stopped their digital, and n nothing stops. And so, but we know that the mail, when it goes out, there's a bump. And we also know it gets delivered because the post office can show us the informed delivery, or actually, it's it's uh, there's another there's another word for it. Um, I you know I'm now I'm finally getting informed delivery down. It took me about two years for that. And um, the so we know it gets delivered. Not only that, but we know it gets delivered to a decision maker because not everybody in the household can decide what mail is junk and what isn't, right? So it goes to a decision maker in the household, and that decision maker has to engage with it. So we know that there's an there there's an awareness and an engagement by the non-buyers, and that gives us two sides of the data set required for machine learning. Uh, that's what you're building when you when you know you see a pop-up and it says where are the fighter hydrants or where are the street uh, or where are the stoplights. What you're doing is you're showing where they are and also more importantly in some ways where they're not. Okay, and uh, that's for this for the uh, auto driving cars. That's to train them to get millions and millions of pictures so they can recognize from all different angles the fire hydrants and the and the the stoplights most importantly. Direct mail is, as far as I know, the only media that gives you both sides of that data set. And so it's ideal for, um, it's ideal for this kind of research that Mark Ritson is talking about. Now, the entire article, the entire article will be available uh, at WDMA.org in a few minutes. 
uh, all the show notes if you subscribe. So get over there, wdma.org slash join and hit the subscribe button. And we will get you have access to all the articles that I reference every day. And there's really a wealth of information there. And they're all tagged and they're all dated, unlike YouTube or LinkedIn. Have a great day. Share. It's worth 20 likes in LinkedIn. Bye-bye.